Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning, and we're going to turn to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter one. Let me read verse seventeen through verse twenty one. First Peter chapter one, verse seventeen to verse twenty one. And it says this If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let us pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you for another opportunity to be in the word of God, to have it in our hands, to be able to not only read it, but hear it preached, to be able to worship freely. So I pray, Lord, we never take for granted of the peace that we have in our country to be able to do this. For we know it's very precious and it could leave us in moments. So I pray we would always seize this time. We know the days are evil, as Ephesians tells us. Let us always be prepared to receive what the Word of God has for us. Because I know, Lord, from myself to your people, that we all need what the Word of God says for our own spiritual growth, for the edification of the body, for the rebuke of sin, for the advancement of the glory of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that today. Teach us what it says, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've been saying in First Peter that Christ definitely makes a difference, and when we become believers... We are to live a different way, not the way we used to. The exhortations that Scripture has presented to us already are designed for the believer's preparation in order to equip us for what lies ahead, what's going to be ha- happen tomorrow and the next day. In other words, we live in a hostile world, and we are going to face hostilities. We are going to face sufferings, as the Bible has been saying, living as aliens in this particular world, Christians being the aliens. So, so far, of the four exhortations, we have looked at two. The first one, we are exhorted to have a fixed hope in verse number 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we're to, do, we're to do that for two reasons, for the purpose of prayer and for the purpose of resisting the enemy. The second exhortation we looked at last week was we are exhorted to live a holy life. As the Bible says, as obedient children, do not be conformed 
to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And of course, an obedient Christian is, uh, is someone who we assume uh, will listen, has listened to the word of God, received the word of God, uh, the word of truth and the gospel of salvation and believed it. We also assume that they understand what the Lord requires in the word of God. And of course, because they are now believers, they are willing to do what the Lord says in order to live holy lives. So the last time I ended with a statement from from Jerry Bridges, which said the only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. If you know nothing of holiness, you shouldn't flatter yourselves that you are a Christian. See, the bottom line, it is not those who profess to know Christ who will enter heaven, but those who live holy lives, which is the result of real conversion to Christ. It is the fruit of real conversion to Christ. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse number 14, it says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So without holiness, no one will even enter into the presence of God. So that means that set apart or holy Christians are to reflect attitudes and behaviors consistent with our new relationship with God in Christ. The Apostle Peter His concern is that the way Christians live should testify to their faith in God, show the character of God in their life, and then witness the gospel. So a correct understanding of God's holiness should change us. That's that's the the result of what the Bible teaches. Uh, so somebody going around saying, I believe in Jesus, and um, does not, that doesn't come yet, please, uh, does not actually have fruit of holiness in their life, something has gone wrong in their understanding of real conversion. So, so when we are captured by the awe of God's holiness, we don't, at first, rejoice because... God's holiness exposes our guilty conscience and and a mountain of sins, which clearly lays bare our extreme unholiness, we immediately realize that we are not like him, we're not like God, and sense that we will never be able to escape the punishment that is due us because of how we have offended, offended God in our sin. Isaiah the prophet, after seeing the Lord God in his holiness, this is his, his conclusion. I'm done. I, I'm out of here. I mean, this, there, I have, there's nowhere for me to go. And that, then something happens in Isaiah chapter 6. His view of God was heightened and clarified. And then this is what happened. He understood God in his holiness. And then that led to understanding himself 
and his need for repentance, which led to an understanding of God's forgiveness, his cleansing, and his need, uh, our need for restoration, and then an understanding of a willingness and a desire to serve God, to serve the living God, and then ultimately an understanding of what true worship is that brings man in touch with the living God. That's what he understood, and that's what we understand when we begin to grasp God's holiness. All this talk of holiness includes the thought of approaching God. In the Old Testament, when someone approached God and in the temple, they had to bring their sacrifice. They had to have the sacrifice slaughtered and the blood of the uh, perfect lamb shed so they can actually have their sins forgiven and approach God properly. Without that sacrifice, just the judgment of God was upon them. That's it. So God is holy, and he must be approached in holy fear. The Heavenly Father is not only a good and loving parent, but he is a judge who demands our obedience. See, many people have the idea that the Old Testament prophets just preached the fear of God And the New Testament is nothing but the love of God. However, there are many places in the New Testament that will definitely change one's thinking on that matter. In fact, Jesus and the entire New Testament bids us to fear God. So this brings me really this morning to our third exhortation in our passage, the exhortation to fear God, the exhortation to have a fixed hope, and to live a life of holiness, these flow together very nicely into this next exhortation. And of course, this next exhortation is that of we're exhorted to fear the Father. If you notice in verse number 17 what it says, and look there again, it says, if you, speaking about believers, Address as Father. That means now that you're in a new relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, then now you address him. The one, it says, of course, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now here is a very clear Uh, passage of scripture about what we're to do. We're preparing to live for God, and part of that preparation is to understand that not only are we to live holy lives in our conduct, in our behavior, but our conduct before God also needs to be a conduct of fear. Now, of course, this is probably one of the most misunderstood things in the Bible, the fear of God. As believers address the Father, As children, they should never forget that he is an impartial judge. And it's not talking about the unsaved here. It's talking about believers in this passage. He is an impartial judge towards his own children, and the Holy One is is without respect of persons judging each one according to their deeds. In other words, after we become a believer, God is evaluating our service to him, our holiness in our life, and he is making proper and very clear judgments on those things. So the Heavenly Father, remember, does not cease to be a judge once he becomes our Father in Christ Jesus. 
Christians are not, though, ever in a position to say, it doesn't matter how I live because I believed in Jesus. In the end, of course, everything will be forgiven at the last judgment. That is presumption, and we should never, ever think in that way. So, the Father treats every child equally based on what they have done. And again, God judges without favoritism or partiality of any kind. The Father knows the sum, and he knows the substance of each person's life, either of doing the will of God or rejecting the will of God. He knows that's taking place. Now, saying that, this is not horrifying fear. The fear that we had as slaves to sin under a father who lied to us, that's Satan, and kept us under the extreme fear of death, as it says in Corinthians 4.4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is, is the image of God. What this passage helps us to discern is that Satan takes a leadership role in the world in order to impose his influence upon humanity so that as a direct resource, uh, he's taking you down the course he is dictating. When you become a believer, you're off that course. You're on a new course. And the course that you're on now is a course that you're led by God. But I do know this. We as human beings have many phobias. We have many fears. When I did a search of how, how actually how many fears uh, that could be found in the human population, I was surprised by the enormity of the list. There was 15 pages, front and back, of phobias. Now, sometimes, of course, fear can grip us so tightly, we, may, we even lose a, a sense of reality. I heard that there is a kind of fear to be so horrible that it, is almost complete, it almost completely cripples a person from functioning normally in society. Fear is powerful. It's enslaving. Uh, it enslaves, and it has, and it does still enslave many. And it does enslave us as believers, too, if we're not careful how we interpret some of those things. In, in the list, I found a couple of uh, fears. Acrophobia, of course, is the fear of heights. Autophobia is the fear of being alone. Aviophobia is the fear of flying. Batophobia is the fear of heights or being close to high buildings. Dentophobia is the fear of dentists. I have that one. Glossophobia, fear of speaking in public or trying to speak in public. Matter of fact, 90% of the population and more has that. Politophobia, fear of fear or of abnormal or having an abnormal dislike for politicians. I think that many people have that today, especially with our new governor coming up. I don't know what he's doing here. 
bibliophobia, fear of books. Maybe some kids have that. Didascalinophobia, fear of going to school. I know most kids have that. Um, Ergophobia, fear of work. Some people, of course, are plagued by that one. Pronophobia, fear of thinking. Scolionophobia, fear of school. Ablutophobia, fear of washing or bathing. I guess the person who don't have respect for crud, if they have that particular one. Ecclesophobia, fear of the church. Harmatophobia, fear of sinning. We all should have that one. Homilophobia, fear of sermons. Hopefully you don't have that one. Theophobia, these are some uncomophobias, the fear of gods or religion. Zeusophobia, the fear of God or gods. And the list went on and on and on and on. But I believe I can say with much proof supporting me that human beings are creatures that can be diagnosed with polyophobia. Fear of many things. And we all have those fears. And it seems to me that there is a right kind and a a wrong kind of fear. Our passage is pointing us to a healthy fear, a fear of God, the true and living God, in which we all ought to have. The fear here is not a fear of a slave, nor merely a fear of a creature to the creator, but a reverential fear of an obedient child to a loving father. And at the same time, that child not taking the father with lightness or with indifference. Very important for a believer to make sure they have that kind of attitude toward their God. See, Christian reverence rests upon the knowledge of God's holy character and God's plan of redemption. Both those things are important to understand fear. A passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians actually links fear and holiness together. And that passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, and then perfecting holiness. How do you do that? In what realm do you do that? In the fear of God. So this becomes the important point here. And this is, of course, this next point of, that we're looking at this morning, and that's the character Christians are, that Christians are exhorted to fear God. This verse, verse 17, I'm going to park there a little bit and because I want to clear some things up in this particular passage of Scripture and in our understanding of the fear of God because it is a passage or it is a subject that is uh, misunderstood too often. Uh, So the fear of God, because it's often misunderstood, needs to be examined a little bit more closely. And so I want to examine at least seven 
seven things the Bible says about the fear of God. So at times I'm going to ask you to use your Bible, and then I'm going to come back to First uh, Peter at the end. But right in the beginning, in Psalm 34, turn there with me, the first thing is this, that the fear of the Lord must be taught. Now, I say that for this reason, that you're not born with the ability to fear God. It is not inherited. It's not given to you. You just don't have it. You have to be taught it. Psalm 34 in verse number 11 says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, if you notice in that passage, there's two things. They're calling the children to come, and of course, they're calling the younger children to come. So the older people can actually teach the children to fear the Lord properly. So the wise parent is to teach their children the fear of the Lord, and make no mistake, the fear of the Lord needs to be taught and modeled. That's the only way we learn it. It is not something that comes to us naturally. It needs to be taught when the human being is a child, and of course it needs to be taught when somebody is a new babe in Christ. They're actually a baby spiritually. No matter how uh, old you are biologically, you are a babe in Christ. If you just became a Christian and you're 40 years old, you're a babe in Christ. So parents and the church, who the disciples of the church, should teach this fear of the Lord when they can direct and mold a person and shape them to understand what that is and then to live in that sphere. The reason why mankind is degenerate is as the book of Romans says and teaches, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why there is so much sin in the world, is because people have thrown God out, they have reinterpreted God, they have uh, substituted God for their own idol, their own philosophy of worship, and therefore what that does, that does not produce holiness and godliness, it produces the opposite. More sin and the proliferation of sin. That's what always happens with false teaching and false understanding, all right? Because there's no God, that means there's no standard, there's no one to judge what I think and what I'm doing in my life. But yet, the Bible teaches, no, there's a God, and he has a standard, and he will judge you for what you do. That's what the Bible teaches. And so, in the Old Testament, the children of God were reminded, like it says in Deuteronomy, Listen, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and they may teach their children. What do they teach their children specifically? How to fear God. So each generation must teach the fear of the Lord, of course, that assumes we know what the fear of the Lord is ourselves before we can actually teach it and model it to someone else. So that brings me to my second uh, point, and that's defining the fear of God, right? And here's a, a definition of the fear of God on the screen here. But the question before we look at that may be for the Christian, does it mean, does the fear of God mean physical fear where we stand and tremble in the presence of the Almighty God? I don't think for a believer it means that. However, 
it does not necessarily exclude that. A believer has a whole different relationship with the Father because of Jesus Christ. It may be good to think of the fear of God that includes at least two facts. The first fact is the fear of the sense of terror. He is God. And secondly, the sense, along with that, of awe and reverence. And in that awe and reverence, I mean also love for God. When you awe something, you hold that something as, as something, when we say, wow. When we think about God, that's how we're thinking about God. He is awesome. There is no one like him. So a good working definition of the fear of God is on the screen to fear God is to be afraid enough to care what he has to say and do humble enough to submit to his authority. Now, I learned really this one particular definition when I was teaching through Proverbs many, many years ago because this one encompasses both fear and trembling and at the same time, along with it, awe and reverence. Now, when I'm saying that, I have to say this too. I have to say this, that fearing God and loving God are opposite sides of the same coin. Fearing God and loving God are opposite sides of the same coin. That brings me to the next one, that the fear of God has something to do with worship. To be one who fears God, take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 1, verse number 8. Chapter, uh, verse 1 is on the screen. The one who fears God is actually a technical language found in, it's technical language found in the Old Testament for a true worshiper. If you read through Scripture, you're going to find this person feared God. Well, what it's really saying is that that person is a true worshiper of the one true God. To be a servant of God is to be at God's beck and call, A God-fearing servant is not necessarily someone, though, under the Mosaic Covenant or the Abrahamic Covenant. For example, Job was under neither. He was a Gentile. And if you notice what it says on the screen, it says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now, you're going to find in Scripture that fearing God and turning away from evil always go together. They always go together. So they're connected. That means practically when I fear God, what do I do? I turn away from evil. Why? Because I know that evil doesn't please God. And, of course, if I'm growing in holiness, I don't want to do what I used to do. I don't want to go where I used to go anymore. I don't want to think the way I used to think anymore. And then notice in verse number 8 of Job, if you're there, It says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Wouldn't you like God to say that about you? Near the end of the book of Job, Scripture concludes... And to, it says in Job 28, 28, and to to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. So, saying all that, the element of fear 
in the usual sense, is not absent of true worship. It actually is worship. And worship is to set on God his importance, his honor, to give him the weight that is due his name, the one who is creator, who has supreme dignity, and is the redeemer of repentant, Christ-trusting sinners. And then, of course, this leads to the next thing, that if, you, if we look and search out the book of Proverbs, I'll just put the verses on the screen, you'll find out that the fear of God is wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 28.14, how blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity, meaning that the fear of God will keep one from hardened heart. Proverbs 14.2, he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is crooked in his ways despises him. That means the fear of God will keep one on the straight path from despising God. And then Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And then notice what it says, so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. So fearing God actually brings one to have a pleasant night's sleep. Because you know what? You're not in control. God is. Right? I can't can spin all the plates. Matter of fact, I can't spin one plate very long before it starts tottering, right, and falling apart. See, God's bringing us and understanding the fear of God that we don't have to control everything. Matter of fact, we can't control everything, but why do we try to control everything? Satan always promises greener grass on the other side of the fence, and he always makes sin look so very good and pleasurable. Don't forget, children, the word of God exposes him for what he is. Satan is a liar. He is a deceiver. He will never, ever lead you down the path to fear the Lord God. Never. He will always present God in an unbalanced way either as a tyrant or as a lenient father who is absent and uninvolved or uncaring of what's going on in his children's lives. So we cannot go with those kind of things. We have to have a balanced view as we look at the word of God. Now, of course, that means, too, that obedient children should never assume that our father shuts his eyes to the sins of his children. We know the father never judges based on social status or rank. He never judges based on external appearance, like looks. He never judges based on natural abilities or talents. And, of course, that's how everybody judges. That's how the world judges, right? It's all about those things. If you don't have those things, you don't rank. You don't get in. You're not in the club. You can't get in the club. See, God, none of those things matter to the Lord uh, when it comes to the fear of God when it comes to walking a holy life. So you know what that means is that we have to choose to fear God. And that's the thing about a Christian. A Christian now has the ability to choose to fear God. Knowing the Father is an impartial judge is paramount to how you will choose to act or to will. You will choose either the highway, and I don't mean the highway on the road, the high road or the low road. 
You'll either choose the worthy way or the unworthy way. You are the one who determines what you will do and put into effect. And determining how you will act each day proceeds under the influence of various considerations. You're influenced by things. You and I are influenced by things every day. Our bodily appetites, right? When things aren't going so good in our body, sometimes we're, we're dull, we're, we're uh, lethargic, we, we're not interested, all right? So it's going to affect us. Affectional desires is going to affect how we choose. Rational judgment is going to affect how we choose. Spiritual convictions, what level of maturity you are as a Christian is going to affect how you choose. Declarations of conscience, all right? If your conscience is convicting you because your conscience has been in a certain area developed by the word of God, you should not go against conscience because the conscience is developing in you deep biblical convictions. Also, examples and influences of others influences your decision. Facts of life, experiences influence your decisions. And of course, what I mentioned last week, the Holy Spirit's promptings and the teaching of the Word of God where the truth of Scripture is transforming your mind and soul in the right direction is, is the very thing that ought to influence your decision, of course, because it's going to bring you to the place where you have a true view of life. It brings you to the place where you are going to uh, have a clear understanding of your, your own character needs. Yes, uh, the Word of God teaches us to understand ourselves better. And we're, sometimes we're very confused in our world about who we are, our, our identity. Our identity in Christ is definitely clear on who we are now. And of course, it will bring us to the place where our decisions are affected by our worthy conception of God in Christ. How do we think of God in our mind should affect everything that we do. And of course, the Holy Spirit makes Christ ever more truly known to us. That's what he does. He constantly calls out new faith in Christ. He's constantly calling out new love toward God and man in Christ. He's constantly showing us new hope for the future and the blessings and, that come because we're in Christ. And he shows us the progress that we're making because we're living in a manner that is in the direction, not a perfection, but a direction that we're living to serve God. So he, of course, even turns the various events of life to their sanctifying use. In other words, the father is going to teach us certain lessons that parents, you can't teach your kids. No one can teach them or a person except God himself. And God will teach us lessons that no one else could teach us. And he's going to do that, and the Holy Spirit of God is going to awaken us to those things, and he's going to awaken us to a desire to pray and directs those prayers to actually conform to the will of God, not to our own selfishness, but to the will of God. And all those things come because we learn to fear God. We learn to respect him. We learn to reverence him. It's like it says in Proverbs 14, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will take refuge. Also, the fear of the Lord is, is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. All right, so up until this point, this brings me to some other things. 
What are some things that we ought not to fear? Well, one at a time. The first thing we ought not to fear is we ought not to fear idols or other gods. Now, Scripture tells us this. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 38, you don't have to turn to all these passages, but I want you to listen. It says, there, the covenant that I made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But I, the Lord, your God, you shall fear. He will deliver you from the land, the hand of all your enemies. And why do we, how come we don't have to fear any other gods? It's because we know that idols are nothing. We know that behind idols are demonic powers, right? So we, we should not fear them. And when you do look at people, cultures steeped in idolatry, you see all kinds of wacky stuff going on, all kinds of sinful behavior going on, all kinds of fear going on, you know, people fearing that they're not bringing the right sacrifices to these, you know, idols. Uh, and see, Christians know that there's nothing to idols. And then also, we are not to fear man. Here's a big one, right? Proverbs twenty nine twenty five. The fear of man brings a what? Snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Why don't we have to fear man? Because we know man is nothing but dust. Right? Nothing but dust. Thirdly, we are not to fear earthly calamities. Luke chapter 21, verse 25 through 28 says this. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. And then in verse 26, it says, men failing from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the power of the heavens will be shaken. It says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Why don't we have to fear earthly calamities? Because we know from the word of God, they're just birth pains for the coming of Christ, which he has in his control. You know, it's amazing. Just last week, I'm going through the news. I'm seeing there's a, there's a, a, a volcano going off in the Philippines. There's an earthquake off the west coast of California, right under Alaska. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little upset there because my daughter's in uh, British Columbia, which is right there, and they, they were supposed to have a tsunami, but they didn't, and all that kind of stuff. Of course, she's, I found that she was pretty far inland. But, and then you look, some, uh, there was another earthquake somewhere else. There was another volcano, another part of the world going off. This is all on the same day. Fires in California burning up thousands and thousands of acres. Crazy stuff going on all the time in the world. It seems like it's, it's becoming more uh, available for us to know quickly. And those things should never cause us fear because they're going to happen. God says they're going to happen. Those are birth pains. Just like a woman has birth pains, you know when the birth pains come, the child's going to come, right? Well, we know Christ is coming. So all it reminds us, should remind us of, doesn't mean we don't get prepared for it. We're, you know, stupid or anything like that. But we're ready. We're getting ready for the coming of the Lord. And, of course, the next one is, True believers do not fear future judgment. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27. We do not have to fear future judgment. And it says here in Hebrews 10, in verse number 26, 
It says, Hebrews 10, 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. All right, why don't we have to fear that? Because we know that our Father sent Jesus Christ to redeem us at a great cost to his Son by dying in our place. So we don't have to fear that terrifying judgment because Jesus Christ has taken the judgment for us. See, that gives us great comfort. Now, there are several things that could motivate us to cause us to fear, and that's the next slide there, and it's this. The first one is the holiness of God cause the holiness of God can cause us to fear him. Revelation 15:4, he who will not fear the Lord and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. Of course, secondly, the greatness of God causes us to fear the Lord. In the book of Deuteronomy, we find that we, we find scriptures like in Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 through 21, where it's communicated to the people there, where it says, he, the God executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And then it says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. You shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done great and awesome things for you. See, the fear of the Lord, the motivation that we can have is that God's done great and awesome things for us. He continues to do that. Matter of fact, there's probably no greater miracle than a conversion of a soul to Christ. That, that sometimes is minimized, but that's the greatest miracle. It's someone who gets redeemed, and they're redeemed forever because of Christ's sacrifice. And, of course, the next one is the goodness of God causes us to fear. We're going to find in right here in uh, Peter that it's going to be uh, when we taste the goodness of God, it motivates us to do something, right? Can we not say, can we argue against that God has, has not been good to us? Can anyone here say that God's not been good to you? No, God is good. And the more you grow and walk in holiness and fear God, the more you understand how good he is and how much he has done for you and what he's doing in your life right now. And, of course, the next uh, slide is, is the next one, is the forgiveness of God causes us to fear him. It says in Psalm 134, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There's forgiveness with you that you may be feared, that God is a forgiving God. And, of course, the next one is the works of God cause us to fear him again. And then, last, the, the coming judgments cause us to fear him. Revelation 14, verse 7, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. So that leads me to the next thing, and it's this. There's two things 
every believer ought to fear at all times. Every believer ought to fear at all times. Here's the first one, God's discipline. If we decide not to walk in holiness, God will discipline us. All right, if we are policing ourselves on a regular basis as we hear the word of God, most likely the Lord won't have to discipline as much as he, he may have to discipline you if you don't. And then the second thing to fear is God's displeasure, especially when we choose to live selfishly instead of for God. We are told in our passage where God the Father does judge his children. If you go back there, right there in 1 Peter, look again at verse number 17, because this is where we have to really consider ourselves. In verse 17 of 1 Peter 1, it says, If you address us, Father, the one who impartially judges according, how does he judge? According to each one's work. So in other words, after our salvation, we will judge, be judged by our deeds, by our works. How you live as a disciple of Jesus Christ will be evaluated. How faithfully you run the Christian life will be judged. So Christians should live in this world with reverence for God in the face of coming judgment. So yes, real disciples will be rewarded for their services or the reward will be taken away from them. See, there is a passage of Scripture in Corinthians that tells us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the passage of Scripture gives us a sense that judgment is definite, and every Christian will face a time of judgment. It is called the judgment seat of Christ. It is at that place that Christians will give an account before God. That's serious. So every day we live in light of that. Now, it is not a judgment. It is not a judgment for sin. Sin will not be the issue at the judgment seat of Christ. And the reason why is that the sin question for the believer has already been settled. And it's been settled for keeps. The moment you repented of your sin and turned to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, the judgment due you because of your sin was placed on Christ as he hung on the cross of crucifixion. There on that cross... Jesus satisfied the justice of the Father and bore the penalty for all your sin. Your account is now marked paid in full by Christ's death. Your sins have been transferred to the cross and Christ's righteousness has been transferred to your account. So that means that those who are in Christ, like Romans chapter 8 tells us, though it says, therefore, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There's, there's no fearful condemnation to the believer if they are in Christ. And how great that truth is that truth. How great to know that. If, now, but of course, if that truth is stressed without bouncing that truth out with knowing that we're saved for good works, then we have to take that into consideration because... The reason for the judgment seat of Christ may be obscured if we think we're just saved and we can go live the way we want. No. When we're saved, we're saved for good works, for God's plan for us now. And, right? So that means that 
this accounting is not for the judgment of sin that's taken care of. It's for the judgment of service. It's for the judgment of works. Like it says in Corinthians 3, verse number 8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So that's what we do. See, we're not laying a foundation. We are actually building upon that foundation. And so the purpose of this of the judgment seat of Christ is not to determine whether people will enter heaven or hell. This issue has already been decided when that person, of course, believed in Christ as their own Savior from sin. Nor is this judgment for the purpose of meeting out punishment for sin. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is to review our lives to review our service, to review our thoughts, our words, our motives after we became a Christian. So, in other words, the Christian life becomes a very serious thing, a very sober thing. This is not, oh, I believe in Christ and go do what you want, live the way you want, plan the way you want. No, it changes everything in what we do. Christ... after his perfect evaluation, will either give or withhold reward. That's what he'll do. So the scripture is very serious and impresses upon us two things. First, the necessity of practical holiness and the fear of God. And secondly, faithful service, sacrificial service to Christ. And even with all the certainty we are given in Scripture concerning the security of salvation and the Holy Spirit's efficient divine work within us, human responsibility still applies. As it says in uh, Philippians, work out your salvation with what? With fear and trembling. That's what we're to do. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So see, then... So then the standard of his judgment is our faithfulness. How are we living our Christian life? See, see so, so this passage of Scripture is bringing to light what it means to fear God. And, of course, it brings me back to the last point here, and it's this, that Christian reverence rests upon the knowledge of redemption focused in on one person. Now, for this, I'd like you to turn back to 1 Peter if you're there, and I want you to notice in verse number 18, there's, to 21, there's four things that becomes very clear after what it just said in Scripture and what I just said also, that fearing God comes about by realizing the depth of God's love for us. And where do we realize the depth of God's love for us? We only can realize it in one place, in the cross. That's where we realize how deeply God loves us. And and believe me, if that's not the greatest motivator of fearing God and reverencing God and living a holy life, nothing is. See, to understand redemption and what redemption has done. There's four things. The first thing is this, and look at verse number 18 of 1 Peter chapter 1. That, 
And here's the first point, that ransomed were ransomed from a lifestyle of bondage inherited from our forefathers. Look what it says in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Now, you would think, and some would think, that what I inherited from my forefathers would be something good. The Bible is saying, no, it wasn't good. See, a way of life that you were given, if you didn't have Christian parents, was dedicated by evil desires, selfishness, ignorance of God, and ignorance of God's will. Now, what could our parents hand down to us but what they knew? If they didn't know Christ, all that they handed down or could hand down is what they knew. If they did not know Christ as their Savior and Master, well, all that they could pass down was their own version of how to live life on this earth. And the Bible is saying here that life was a life of bondage. It was a life of slavery because it never delivered you from sin because sin was the problem, and sin has always been the problem. A lifestyle that was pointless and senseless because it had no lasting value It was completely devoid of hope. You lived in ignorance, you were in bondage, and you died in bondage, and there was no hope in death. Christ purchased his children and freed them from that futile way of life. See, this gives a picture of a prisoner who needs to be set free, set free from something he himself could not escape. Someone had to deliver them. And so remember, ransom is the picture of God buying you from the slave market of sin, purchasing you from the slave market of sin. And that purchase was of very high cost, point number two. Notice what it says in verse number 19. And of course, this ransom were ransomed by the highest cost possible, verse number 19, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, in other words, Christ's blood is, the, in, has, it is of inestimable, inestimable greater value than any earthly temporary commodity like silver and gold. And silver and gold are at the top of the pile, I guess, actually, if you want to trade, right? See, Christ purchased us with his own blood, not with any temporal human payment. And that was an eternal sacrifice, his blood that washed away our sin forever. See, we were rescued and out of the slave market with a high price. And that's the price of the cost of the blood of Christ. And then thirdly, ransomed by an extraordinary death. If you notice in verse number 19, it says, but with precious blood, notice how it's written, as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, I think the translators had a difficult time translating that passage because they were trying to avoid something. They were trying to avoid saying that Jesus Christ was like all the other lambs of the Old Testament. That's what they were trying to avoid. 
So it does not say in the scripture, Christ is a lamb in a class with all the other top quality blemishless and spotless lambs. It doesn't say that. It says Christ stands alone as such a lamb there being no other like him before or after. The person of Christ is in the mind of the author, not an animal or a lamb. Christ is the original of all the copies of the Old Testament. So we're talking about a man who dies in the place of sinner, who is called, who performs what the lambs performed in the Old Testament for someone to have their sins forgiven and have approached to the holiness of God. And that approach is given to us by Jesus Christ, by the high cost of this extraordinary death that no one could have died except Jesus Christ. And all the other things were just pictures pointing to that one one sacrifice. All the other stuff was just pictures. And then one last other thing, and it's this. We're ransomed, we're bought from that slave market of sin by a personal plan of God. Now, if you look at verse 20 and 21, this is an incredible passage And I don't want you to miss this, so if you're not looking at your Bibles, you ought to, or wherever you're looking. It says there in verse number 20, it says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times. Notice what it says, for the sake of you. Why did this all happen? For your sake. God was doing it for us. And then notice what it says in verse 21, Who through him are believers in God. That's another hard passage that they were difficult to translate, right? He's saying here, through, through him, we're believers. Only through Christ can we become believers. No other way, but we're in believers. We're believers in the true and living God. And then it says, what did he do finally? He raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God alone. In other words, this is the right path. This is the right way. This was delivered to you by God but it was planned before the foundation of the world, before anything was, before you were born, before this world was here, before this universe, before all the stars and the planets were here. It was planned before all that. And he was done for your sake. See, God knew long before creation what would happen when he created mankind. He wasn't taken by surprise. He chose the only way that sin-laden mankind could be brought back to him. He foreknew his people, and he foreknew Christ's perfect sacrifice for us. So I said, God's plan is personal, and believe me, it is. And if you don't see the love of Christ here, and the number one motivation for fearing God and living a holy life, then you've missed the point of the passage. See, Christians can persevere through life's trials because they are elect for whom Christ died. They have been chosen in Christ before anything, and God's whole plan was all planned out before anything took place. So, see, God's not taken by surprise. He knows what's going to happen. Matter of fact, he knows the future already. We're heading to that. And see, do you see how... This frees us up from any kind of fears. It frees us up from any kind of bondages. It actually gives us freedom to serve God. 
It gives us freedom to put our head on the pillow at night, thank God for who's done, and whatever God has for us, we're trusting him in it. It gives us also the knowledge that every day we wake up, we live before the eyes of God, and we are responsible for everything, our words, our actions, our relationships, everything we're responsible for. Why? Because we have an impartial judge, the Father, our own Father, who's not going to tolerate bad behavior. He's not going to tolerate excuses. He's, we, we, he will not give an ignorant eye to those kind of things in our life. No, he will rein that in, but he will only rein it in for his children. He will not rein it in for someone who's one, not one of his kids. So Christians can persevere through life's trials. Through faith, our present salvation is realized. Through hope, our future salvation is realized. And of course, we know that believers will share in Christ's resurrections because Christ was the first fruits. And then it says in Corinthians, then comes the end. It says, when he hands over the kingdom of God and uh, to, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Someday the Lord's going to take everything and hand it back to the Father. That's what he's going to do. That day hasn't come yet. It's coming. And, of course, believers will share in God's glory. So, so this morning, this is what you know now. If you've been paying attention, if you're awake, if you have not been drifted off, if you have not plan- been planning your schedule for tomorrow, if you have not been thinking about your problems and troubles, then this is what you know today. And if you have been doing that, shame on you. You know that you are to be holy because God's holy and you're one of his kids. You know that the Father is to be feared and revered in a proper way, and that means you're to love him. Love and fear are different sides of the same coin. And then you know God's purpose to redeem his people in the sacrifice and resurrection of his of Jesus Christ happened long before anything was here. So that, you know what that means? It was never touched by human beings. It was never messed up by any one of us, and it cannot be. God has full control of everything. He is sovereign over everything. But here's the sad note. The sad note is this, that if someone is not rescued from this futile way of life that they were born into. Their life will end in condemnation from a judge who judges all things according to their works. That's sad. And I pray that that would not be you. You It doesn't have to be you being that you heard this message this morning. So that means that the fear of God in our life is necessary. It's necessary for worship. It's necessary for service. It's necessary to keep us from sin. It's necessary for good government. It's necessary for the further progression of the understanding the fear of God. It's, it's necessary for administration of justice. It's necessary for perfecting of, the perfecting of holiness in our Christian lives. And the result of fearing God is it brings pleasure to the Lord. It 
causes the Lord's pity to be increased upon us every single day. It also brings acceptance with God. It brings the mercy of God. It brings blessing. It brings confidence. It brings separation from evil. It brings fellowship. It brings and supersedes the fear of man, any of the fear of the world that can be cast upon us. It brings answer to prayer, and it brings a long life, actually a longer life. That's in God's control, of course, but if you are a wise person, you could actually live longer because you don't do stupid things to your body, right? And you actually have a sound mind, too, because you are understanding truth, and truth is cleaning you up and correcting everything and causing you to live uh, in a right way, understanding the world that you live in and, and the sin, what sin has caused and where you're going. All those things are very important to know. So you know what? This is, this is the conclusion I have today. Let's pray that God will teach us to fear him. Let's pray that. And let's be serious about that. For it tells us in Scripture, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Proverbs 15, verse 16. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I thank you, Lord, again for bringing to our mind the truths found right in the word of God in our hands. Thank you, Lord, for the sovereignty that we see in your whole plan of salvation. But I pray, Lord, today you would teach every one of us here to fear you, to have reverence for you. Lord, that that we, we, we would be afraid enough to care about what you say and that we would care what you say and that we would humble ourselves into your mighty hand so we can submit to your authority over our life because, Lord Jesus, you are our master now. Sin's no longer our master. We're not our master. You are. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we do that, we would realize that fearing God and loving God are the opposite sides of the same coin. And Lord, as we begin to grow in this, free us up from any other bondages that we've dragged into our Christian life. So Lord, we can learn every day how to live in a pleasing manner before your eyes and give you glory and thanks for all that you've done. And I pray in your name, amen. Let's stand together.